Again, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of God. Uh, the most consequential follower of Jesus, a man named Paul, wrote a letter to the most consequential city of his day in the known world, which was the city of Rome. And he, because he knew that if he could get and help the people uh, of the church there and of the city there really grasp why Jesus matters life, and that message would start there in the, in the world's center and get kind of everywhere. It would disseminate everywhere. So every argument he constructs, every sentence he puts together, every word he crafts, he chooses, is, is carefully crafted and carefully shaped. It's the most theological and, and rich of all of Paul's writings. And so the last few Sundays, we started to look at one of these carefully shaped and crafted words each Sunday. And we're calling it Big Words for Living. Big Words for Living. We're taking a big word and we're illustrating it how it matters for the way we live our life. And these words break down into three categories. We have liberating words, right? We have illuminating words. That sounds wonderful, right? But first we have scary words. And, and today's uh, final scary word is the scariest yet, and it's the word judgment. Um, in the words uh, Dave just read for us, there, there's a mixture, I think, of, of blunt reality, but also some untapped insight, which all of which points in a direction that you might not typically associate with a message on judgment. And praise be to God for his wisdom. So we're, we're going to get started. No more, uh, no more, no more fooling around. I'm going to get right to it. So first, the first big point I want to make is that a terrible but necessary day. A terrible but necessary day. This is one of these blunt realities that there is a future day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 5, right, says that. If you're reading there along with me. A day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This day is described just in this passage. It's described with such words as fury, judgment, tribulation, distress, and wrath. 
And for many of us, maybe even, maybe, maybe even you here this morning, this elicits a really big question and a, and a fair question to ask, which is, how can a loving God send someone to hell? How can a, a, a loving, gracious God send someone to hell? And as I ask this question, there are a few presuppositions kind of embedded in that question that are worth challenging. And I think it's important that we challenge all three of those, okay? Presupposition in the question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? And the first presupposition in that question is that love and anger are opposites. We assume that love and anger are opposites. opposites. Uh, the famous Holocaust survivor, uh, Elie Wiesel, who wrote the book Night, uh, once said it best that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Opposite of love isn't hate, but indifference. To, to not care about something at all, to totally resign yourself, to just shrug your shoulders at someone's plight, at someone's issue, to not care about anything at all is far worse than to feel something. I vividly recall a conversation many, many years ago when I was a young kid between two friends, um, one whose dad could be overbearing and short-tempered, sometimes really hard to be around. And my friend was often angry at that, at his dad. But then the other friend chimed in and said, well, my dad's never even around. He was always working, totally absent. And that friend felt no connection at all to his dad. Now, whose father is worse? Or whose, whose experience their father do you think was worse? Right? The reason you probably say the latter, the one who felt nothing, is that that anger can often be rooted in love. Think about it for a moment. When you, when you consider and you hear about the Holocaust, uh, someone who's shot in the back when running for their lives, when you, when you think about the slave trade, when you think about someone being evicted because they can't earn a living wage, when you think about global sex trafficking, anyone who takes advantage of the poor, the meek, or the vulnerable, what do you feel? You often feel anger, right? But what's behind that? Behind that is love. Love is the root of anger towards injustice. We feel that anger because we, we know, we feel that something's wrong because we know that person's worthy of love. We love that person. Indifference is reserved for those of us who think of, of women as less than, other races as subhuman, uh, blue-collar workers as undeserving, and so we just don't feel anything at all which is far worse, right? The more we love, the more quickly and aggressively our anger is kindled towards injustice, right? Toward, especially people that are, we care about the most. Someone attacks them, our anger is even more aggressive, isn't it? And the root of all that is love. The night Jesus was arrested, uh, he went and sat quietly among a grove of trees to pray, and he fell on his knees and he said this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what my will, but yours be done. Now, this image of a cup, it pops up everywhere um, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and everywhere it, it, it pops up, it sort of it cuts like a knife um, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Zechariah, all use this image of a cup 
to communicate God's judgment poured out on nations for practices like child sacrifices, uh, exploitation of the poor, and all kinds of atrocities. And God says, you have to drink from this cup. It is my cup of judgment. And every time I think about it, that cup of judgment, this picture comes to mind, as silly as it might sound, of the bad guy and Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, right? Who they go to go find the Holy Grail, and he takes this cup, and he drinks it, this Nazi guy. And he drinks the wrong cup. He drinks the cup of judgment, and he just shrivels away. Right? And, and the, the knight there says, you chose poorly. Right? And you remember this moment, some of you? Is that just me? Think about that? I don't think so. Love-rooted anger could be a good thing. Love-rooted anger is so deeply entrenched in the heart of God. Now, when you think of your commitment to oppose injustice, it's like, it's like a drop, a tiny drop compared to the full cup of God's love-rooted anger towards injustice. You feel it when I bring up the Holocaust, when you bring up people who are being exploited, when you think of people who are vulnerable, who are being taken advantage of, God feels it exponentially more. So love and anger are not opposites. In fact, love is often the root of anger, especially towards injustice. Another presupposition about the idea, how can a loving God send someone to hell, is that hell is primarily a place. We think of hell often as primarily a place, but hell, biblically, is primarily a state of relationship, either relational closeness or relational separation. Often described, like it here is, is here in verse 8, as a, as a hard heart. There's that relational separation, verse 8, hard heart. Jesus tells a, a parable, a famous parable about a poor man and a, a, named Lazarus and, and this rich man. After both die, Lazarus is described as not, not going to heaven, but as going to Abraham's bosom. He could have easily said heaven, but instead he said Abraham's bosom because he wanted to communicate that Lazarus is experiencing relational closeness. So he says Abraham's bosom. And the commentators agree that it's very telling that the other person in the story doesn't have a name. He's simply called the rich man. Because he built his relational closeness to wealth during his life. And so he continues relational separation from God in the afterlife. So he builds a relational closeness to money above all things and a separateness from God during life. And so that his separateness from God continues after life. But it starts here. And that's why Paul says here in our passage that it's while we're living that people are storing up wrath for themselves. It's not like that just happens one day. It's happening this process while we're living. I'll relate that back to to Romans 1. Uh, A Romans 1 sermon I preached a few weeks ago on worship. And I said that the more you, you choose to say no to God and yes to some other ultimate object, person, uh, from which you get your sense of meaning and your sense of worth, your sense of hope, the more you do that and say no to God, eventually God is going to give you what you keep choosing. He's going to throw up his hand and say, I'm going to give you what you keep choosing, or rather he gives you to it. Here you go. This is what you wanted. This is what you wanted. Such that, that hell is actually what many choose while they're still living. They think, you think of it as, I just don't want to have anything to do with God. 
Well, that's what hell is ultimately. And so the more you keep choosing, I don't want anything to do with God, nothing to do with God, nothing to do with God, freedom from God himself, that's what you ultimately get. Presupposition three to the idea, and that leads to presupposition number three that, you know, why would I, why would, how can God, a loving God, send someone to hell that it's God doing the sending? God is simply giving us what we most wanted while living, giving us over to it. This is what you want. The day when love-rooted anger towards injustice is poured out is terrible. It's going to be a terrible day, but necessary for God to actually be loving. Right? If we say that it's right for injustice to be punished, then it's right to have that day. Otherwise, God would not be loving. The problem the problem is where does one draw the line, right? How much injustice is too much injustice? Why don't you do a thought exercise with me? Because this is a hard question to answer, harder than we might think. Consider every person you spent time with over the last couple days. The last couple days, every person you spent time with. And now ask the question, would I let those people see a transcript of all my thoughts in those 48 hours? Would I let those people see a transcript of every single thought I had in the last 48 hours? I know that my kids <laughs> would experience some hurt. <laughs> I'm, I, I might lose a friend. Katie and I would probably have to uh, undergo some counseling as a result of all these things, right? Because there is injustice in me. Yikes, right? That's the result of all that by himself risking his life to, to expose the injustice in Soviet gulags under Stalin and ultimately being sentenced to one, a wonderful man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn had this great epiphany, and he says this, quote, gradually it was disclosed to me that the lines separating good and evil, remember, he's experiencing the worst kind of injustice, right? The lines separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Let me say that again. The line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. And I feel that. When I think of the transcript of my thoughts and other people seeing that, I feel it just from that. So there will be a great, terrible, but that's why I say you, you can't spell judgment without you and me. That's the second point I want to make this morning. If the line of injustice passes through every, good and evil passes through every human heart, you can't spell judgment without me and you. When we think of people um, who we think are deserving of the worst, most terrible, most final kind of judgment, we rarely, if ever, think of ourselves, do we? We think of them. That's exactly why Paul changes his voice in Romans chapter 2. Now, we didn't get to hear that. But in Romans 1, if you were to read a little bit further up in Romans 1, he has just listed a bunch of things that they do. And so read that with me if you would. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can see, starting in verse 29, that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are, go they are gossips, etc. Now, Paul has preached... At this point, he's, he's pastored, he's met with people for a couple decades at this point, well enough now to know, oh, 
When I teach, they think I'm only talking about other people. You know, not church people. Not people who, who've kind of known about God from, from the womb. They're thinking, oh, it's them. It's not us. And so what he does is he does something interesting starting in Romans 2. He engages in a rhetorical device that we wouldn't really kind of pick up on, but it's called a diatribe in his day. And what, what happens is the speaker doesn't address an audience. They address a hypothetical partner. It's like having a one-on-one -on -one moment profiling another person, and the audience gets to look in on that moment. All right, so think about, you know how today, like a, a film director or, or a reporter, they don't just uh, report an, a big problem or issue, right, with lots of facts. They profile an individual, right? If you really want to see the heart of a story, you'll see, the, here's the problem, here's the individual. You profile their story, how, how something affects them, how they respond, whether it's uh, good, evil, uh, a mix of, of whatever, good, bad, or ugly. There's a personal touch because that allows me and the audience to see myself more clearly in that person, right? If I could see, oh, that's, what, that's what's really going on. Ooh, I can relate to that. And that's really what Paul is doing here. He's saying, okay, I'm going to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion, and you're going to look in on it. And we're going to say, for example, verse 3, do you suppose, oh, man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet you do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? And we look at that conversation, and we say, no, no, they shouldn't escape God's judgment. And then you realize, oh, I'm supposed to see myself in that conversation. <laughs> That's me in that conversation. That's what Paul's doing here. Now, Katie often says, uh, if you were to ask Katie, she would say that I, I'm not a particularly judgmental person. I've got a lot of faults. Typically, being judgmentalism isn't one of them. In fact, I, I lack judgmentalism sometimes to a fault. I literally wrote these words down on this past Wednesday afternoon, and then Wednesday night happened. We're at our waiting rooms on Wednesday night, and someone made the comment uh, about women feeling judged, uh, and they mentioned the uh, American South, uh, South Southern part of the United States. And I said, um, hey, you know, uh, beware especially those, those uh, ladies who wear big hats. I said, they're especially judgmental. And I could have left it there, but I, but I had to go further. So after waiting rooms was done, I pulled up this, this uh, Saturday Night Live clip uh, that parodied women who wear big hats. It was a recent thing they did. I thought it was funny, and I laughed. I was like, okay, I pulled this up. I laughed. No one else laughed. Just crickets. And even as I say this, I, well, you're going you're gonna to see that I'm the jerk here, but you might think at first that my problem is, uh, is, is sexism. Oh, no, no, no. I recalled uh, back to the time I once publicly called, called out a good friend of mine uh, for wearing a fedora, a good male friend for wearing a fedora on his head. And he never wore a hat again. I'm serious. This guy never, I never saw him wear a hat again after I did that. When I first met Katie, I made a comment about one of her hats. It reminded me, I told her of the character Six from the, 1990, the 90s show Blossom, if you remember that show. It doesn't matter. And I was like, and I thought back to all these times. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what is my deal? And honestly, a lot of my issue with this is rooted in authenticity. I don't like when people are real, when aren't real. And big, irregular hats make it seem like people are maybe trying to hide behind an accessory and mask their personality. But who am I to judge, right? I'm a 40-year-old man preaching to you in red Nike shoes right now. 
If you can't, can't see it, then they're right here, right? Dad, husband, pastor, follower of Jesus, and relatively mature, and yet here I am exposed as a judge of those who wear irregular hats. A more serious question behind that is how does such spiritual blindness creep into my heart, right? Like, why do I say, make such a comment on, what, what's going on here that would make me say these things and do it repeatedly? I couldn't see myself clearly. I was blind to the line of good and evil that cut through my heart and hadn't seen that pattern for years. And more importantly, if that's going on in my heart, how do I now change? How do I change what's really happening in here? So repentance is a fancy word Paul often uses. He uses it here in verse 4. Right, look at our passage. Do you presume on the riches of not knowing God's kindness leads us to repentance? And repentance simply means to turn to the Father for his help to change. That's the simplest definition I can think of. To turn to the Father for his help from change. You know, when you were a kid, surely you remember some moment where you were trying something over and over again, but you kept failing at it. And you kept failing at it, and you kept failing at it. And finally, you go to your mom and dad and say, okay, guys, I need help. I need help with this. That is basically a picture of repentance. Life with Jesus is one of continually turning back to the Father for help, recognizing I've tried, I've failed, I cannot do this on my own. But how do we know when we need to turn? Verse 4 begins with a question, and it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not knowing that his kindness actually is what leads us to repentance. Do you presume? That word presume is a, is a clumsy, I think, translation of the Greek word uh, kataphroneo. Kataphroneo, which in this context, I, I believe, should probably be more like, translated like think little of. Or for our modern sense, you don't give a second thought to. So it would read more like this. Do you not give a second thought to the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience not realizing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to change. And in my opinion, the whole key to turning back to the Father for real and lasting change, to protect us from judgmentalism, to, to prevent us from our hearts becoming hard, and for real change, this is the whole key, which is why our message in a nutshell is this. If you remember nothing else, remember this. It's the second thought that can change you. It's the second thought that can change you. Consider when you hear something or do something, what do you give second thoughts to? What do you normally give second thoughts to in your life? For me, it's often to reinforce self-justification. Here are more reasons why I'm right about this. Right? Uh, second thoughts, I give self-preservation. I really need to get that before anyone else, and here are my reasons why I need to get it first. And in some cases, for self-condemnation, to reinforce all the ways I've screwed up. This way and that way and this way and that way, and that's why I'm a failure. I give second thoughts to those kinds of things all the time. And yet, there's all this good news that I let, that we let pass us by in the form of God's kindness, his forbearance for all our acts of rebellion, his, his patience for us to change. All these ways that God makes his love active in our lives, which is what grace is. That he shows us love through what this person says to us, for this deed that was done, for, for this beautiful thing we just got to experience or see in our lives. And we let these things just pass us by without second thoughts. 
I'll give you a concrete example from my life. The silence of no one else laughing at the big hat clip I showed. All right, I'm going back to the big hat thing again. <laughs> All right, there was utter silence when I showed them that Saturday Night Live clip. That moment was embarrassing, and it was shaming, and it likely would have stayed that way if it weren't for God. But upon second thought, that silence is actually a gift of grace from God. It led to self-reflection, to seeing my own heart and my pattern of judgmentalism more clearly, leading me to, to Jesus to receive his forgiveness. Otherwise, I don't see it. I don't give it a second thought. I never see it for the gift that it is. Again, first thought, just another reason for me to feel bad about myself. Second thought, grace, a reminder that, that God cares about my life and wants to bring me to a place of realizing my fault and receiving forgiveness. So here's the challenge. For those of you who follow Jesus, here's the challenge. I want you to commit for just for the next 24 hours to the discipline of second thoughts towards God's grace. All the ways he makes his love active in your life, right? The words people say that you might just go in one ear out the other, right? The things you see that you normally just pass by, the experiences that you take for granted, giving second thought to them. And that would protect you from a hardened heart. What about any of you who don't yet follow Jesus, who maybe haven't given him a first thought, much less a second? Well, you have a choice. You have the choice for a level playing field. And that's the third point today. The choice for a level. I believe some of us judge because we want, we yearn for a level playing field for everyone. We really just want things to be fair, not only for us, but for everyone. Which is why Paul's closing argument in this passage is bookended by talking about God's justice. He says in verse 6, he will render to each according to his or her works. Right? Verse 11, God shows no partiality. That means no one gets let off the hook. But also, neither will anyone be forgotten. No one will be forgotten. There will be, a, there will be a leveling. There will be justice. But the Bible is so clear that the choice for that justice is ours. You can either get justice through condemnation or you can get justice through grace. Justice through condemnation or justice through grace. Remember, we looked earlier at this moment of judgment for Jesus. Under great distress during the night of his arrest, he asked the Father to remove this cup of judgment Remove this cup of judgment from me, he asked, right? Yet on the cross, the Father, the Father answers that question. On the cross, he says no to Jesus in order that he might one day say yes to us. He lets Jesus endure that cup of judgment. Jesus lived the only perfect life of love, and he takes upon himself God's just punishment for sin, that that. That intense physical pain of cru the crucifixion pales in comparison to absorbing in himself the wrath of God towards the evil that runs through the heart of each of us and of every person who's ever lived or will ever live. Jesus absorbs that judgment. A way to think about that is that the judge steps down from heaven and comes to earth to receive his own judgment. The judge, from heaven step, the judge steps down from heaven 
to receive on himself, in himself, his own judgment. That's what Jesus does. And in doing so, he opens to humanity a choice for judgment day. Lean on your own works or the works of Jesus. Plead your own case or simply plead Jesus. That's a choice. And you'll get justice either way. And um, it's either been a movie or, or, in, or maybe you saw it in a theater or a dramatic uh, playhouse. You may have seen the, uh, the play Les Miserables, which was written um, back in the 19th century, Victor Hugo. And if you don't know about it, I'll briefly tell you a couple things that will help you here. Uh, the protagonist is a, is a man named Jean Valjean. Uh, he escapes um, from a work prison after spending 19 years of hard labor in a work prison for stealing a loaf of bread. And so he resolves after, after getting out of prison to spend the rest of his life sort of meeting out what he considers just wrath for an unjust punishment, to, to meeting that out to every person he encounters. Uh, so a priest takes him in soon after he escapes. The priest uh, feeds him, houses him, cares for him. Valjean responds by stealing his sil silverware in the middle of the night. Well, he gets caught for that. It's brought back to the priest's house, and the priest lets him off the hook by claiming that Valjean is his friend and the silverware was a gift. It's a moment of pure grace, love made active. He's, he has given something that he does not deserve, but it's still not enough for Valjean, right? I mean, the... the the best years, the vigorous years of his life were taken away from him through injustice. So again, he meets out his own version of what he feels like is just wrath. Just after the priest incident, in a moment that's not caught in the movies or in the plays or anything like that, Valjean, in the book, encounters this little boy who's walking along the street, flipping a coin. Flipping a coin, walking along. It's his most valuable coin. And the coin accidentally drops, falls to the ground, and starts rolling towards Valjean and stops there. And instead of picking it up and giving it back to the boy, Valjean steps on the coin. And the boy asks him to give it back, starts to plead with him to give it back, but Valjean does not move his foot, cruelly leaves it there. Finally, the boy runs away in tears, wondering at his own cruelty. Valjean begins to cry, weeping in himself, he turns around, he starts searching everywhere for the boy, starts calling his name, but he never finds the young man. And here's the moment I want to read to you, quote, The pardon of the priest was the greatest assault and most formidable attack which had moved him yet. His hard-heartedness would be forever settled if he resisted this act of forgiveness from the priest. And yet, if he yielded, he should be obliged to renounce that hatred with which the actions of other men had filled his soul, that this time it was necessary to conquer or be conquered. I'm going to read that again. He realized that this is the time it's necessary to continue with his life to conquer or finally be conquered. I heard a musician say he read this line as a teenager and it changed his life. He'd experienced a lot at that point as a young man. But he realized he could either keep trying to, to, to dispense kind of his wrath and judgment on others or allow the gift of grace to finally conquer him. Which will it be? You're here this morning and perhaps you've been hard done by 
Or you, or you deeply feel for others who keep getting snuffed out. And your heart is filled with this desire to, to conquer with a just wrath, just like Valjean's. And yet who can judge who is more or less deserving of eternal paradise? Who is more or less deserving of hell? Where would you draw the line? And does that line run through your own heart? Let me suggest, friend, that being here today, this day, may be that right time to finally make a choice. I want to encourage you to give a second thought to laying down your wrath, to no longer pleading your own case. Instead, simply plead Jesus. I'm going to pray. But instead of closing us in prayer like I would normally would, I want to give us a time of silence, just pure silence, to give second thought to some good news you heard this morning, some piece of good news you heard this morning, because it's that second thought that can truly change you, change your heart.